Hello, church family. My name is Greg Amerson. I am currently an elder in training here at Zoe. And if I have not met you yet, then I hope that I will get a chance to meet you soon and hear your story of how you came to this congregation. It's hard to believe that it's been almost a year or a little, a little over nine months since I was last up here preaching a sermon. It's like the old saying goes, um, the days are long, but the years are short. Today, we're continuing our series entitled Stories That Teach. For those of you that have not been with us, we have been going through some of the parables of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. Today, we're going to be looking at the very next parable in the Gospel, the one that comes right on the heels of last week's that Kenny preached on. Today, we will look at the parable of the great banquet. Turn to Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 15, if you will. Go ahead and be turning to Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 15. While you're turning there, I've got a question for you. When you were a kid, did you ever dig a hole in your backyard and go as far as you could go, keep digging, and then have someone come up next to you, maybe a friend or a parent, and say, hey, did you, did you know that if you keep digging, you'll actually end up in China? At least that's what people told me, right? And so I was wondering, is that really true? So I looked it up this week. And anywhere in the continental United States, if you dig a hole, you know, provided you can bypass the core, if you dig a hole and go straight through, you'll actually end up in the middle of the Indian Ocean, somewhere off the western coast of Australia. So why would people tell me as a kid, oh, you'll end up in China? I guess what they're thinking is you'll end up on the far side of the world, some places far away from where you are right now, as you could imagine. Things there would be really different. So let's imagine you're a kid and you, you dig all the way through the earth and you come out to a place like Australia. Would you notice anything is different? You see, Australia, being in the southern hemisphere, the seasons are actually reversed, right? So on Christmas Day, you get up, you open presents, and then you go to the beach and have a barbecue because it's the hottest day of the year. Or when you go and you look, you look outside at night and you look up at the man in the moon, the, the man is actually flipped upside down. And then when you go back into your house to turn on the light switch, you actually flip the switch down to turn it on, flip the switch up to turn it off. Could you imagine being in a place like this as a kid where suddenly everything that you took for granted is actually now right the opposite? It's all topsy-turvy. In, the, in these parables that we've been studying about in Luke, Jesus has been warning his audience that they have misunderstood the kingdom of God and that the values of his kingdom are upside down from where they're coming from. It would be like trying to explain to a small child who's digging in their backyard what Australia would really be like. They would not be able to understand Jesus' audience was not understanding what he was teaching about in the kingdom. So if you haven't already done so, please turn to Luke chapter 14, and I will start reading our text today, starting in verse 15 until verse 24. This is God's word. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife. And therefore I cannot come. 
So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Let me pray for us. God, in your wisdom, you have decided to speak to us finally through your son. And it's his words today that we need. We need them in our life just as much as the people that heard them those first dinner party 2,000 years ago, Lord. Thank you that we can read this text and know that it has been faithfully transmitted to us and preserved for us in Scripture. And so we can read these words and we can let these words read us here this morning, Lord. May they read me. May they read everyone in this room that we will be convicted by what your Holy Spirit has to teach us and what your Son Jesus is teaching us about his kingdom, Lord. Be with us now in this next few moments. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In today's text, Jesus once again is warning the scribes and Pharisees they have made a dangerous presumption. They thought the blessings were in the kingdom and they already had possession of them. But the actual blessings are not in the kingdom, but are the king himself. The actual blessings of the kingdom are not in the kingdom. They are the king himself. The true blessings are a right relationship with the king. Before we dive into the passage today, let's consider the context. The time was the early first century. The nation of Israel was a vassal state in the Roman Empire, and life was hard under the boot of Roman rule. Therefore, any time someone hosted a dinner and invited guests, those people would jump at the chance to get to escape the burden and toil of their everyday life, and they would want to go enjoy a relaxing meal with friends. So you can imagine that dinner parties like the setting of today were the very height of Jewish life. Such a great banquet would have been the event of a lifetime. Not only were these occasions pleasant because of the rich food and drink, they were actually an integral part of their entire fabric of their society. You see, these dinner events, they were part of a complex set of social constructs, of reciprocity and quid pro quo, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. For any dinner party like this, people would have been paying attention to who the host was, his status, and then who the guests were and their status. And they would have closely scrutinized this relationship for any lapses in social propriety. Kenny taught us last week about this honor and status society and how it played a very important part in their lives. At this point in the history of Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees and the religious leaders would often use occasions such as these dinner parties to engage with Jesus, but often rarely doing it, rarely doing it in good faith. They would always try to trap him in some catch-22, like, like we see in the earlier parts of chapter 14, putting a crippled person at the party with him to see what Jesus would do, see if he would break some law. In today's passage, the immediate context is in one of those dinner parties on a Sabbath hosted by a Pharisee. Jesus would use these times to teach based on the situation, and he would teach through parables many times. Remember, parables have the power to reveal, conceal, and perpetuate. They revealed truths about the kingdom of God. 
They conceal truths for those that don't have ears to hear, and they perpetuate truths by using techniques that will stick in the mind of those that are listening. Already in this chapter, they have seen three principles that have been taught by Jesus. First, the first part, he exposes the hypocrisies of the Pharisees when he went and actually healed a man on the Sabbath. Next, he exposed their lack of humility in the parable of the wedding feast because he noticed how the guests were acting with regards to where they were sitting. And then thirdly, he criticized the host saying, when you invite guests, you only are inviting the guests that can repay you. Now we come to today's parable and it continues on that theme. It goes even further because they weren't understanding Jesus' teaching about humility. So he went even further. He pushed the story even further today to show the true nature of the upside-down kingdom. Let's get into it. The first point, irony. We'll cover it in three points. Um, The irony, the incompatibility, and finally, the inversion. The first point, the irony. One way that something can be ironic is when the opposite of what is expected actually happens. One way something can be ironic is when the opposite of what is expected actually happens. You can recognize this type of irony when you see it quickly, like when a police station is robbed, or if you have a pilot who's afraid of heights. Recently, I saw a news report where the company that makes Zoom virtual meeting software, they told all of their employees they must return to the physical office for work. So those are easy irony to see, but sometimes irony can work at many levels, and it takes a bit more unpacking to see it. That's the case of the irony we see in our text today. It's actually ironic on three levels. And the reason why I want to spend some time going into this is that we can't fully understand Jesus' parable unless we understand the depth of the problem that Jesus was addressing. So let's begin the text and look at it in detail here, starting in verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. The person who made this statement is another one of the dinner guests, probably a Pharisee. Luke doesn't identify him, but he doesn't want us to know that person's name. He just wants to know what he said. Let's focus on that. Just prior to this, Jesus had been describing in his previous parables about who would be blessed and how they would be blessed. And it was in context of that, this guest pronounces who will be blessed. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. This is the first level of irony. The statement that is made is true, but not in the way the speaker intended. The statement that is made is true, but not in the way the speaker intended. His presumption about what he said was why it was wrong. He is speaking from the vantage point who someone who he's speaking from the vantage point of someone already at the table. He presumes that he and his fellow Pharisees are going to be there at that banquet. His statement betrays his lack of humility. The previous parables Jesus were speaking had been speaking about were about humility. We know that because according to verse 15, it says, He heard those parables. Read again. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things. He's speaking about humility, and then he makes that statement. Jesus is now going to try to help him see their pride. That was the point, but his statement presumes that the lessons Jesus was giving didn't apply to him. The Pharisees had been previously warned about about presumption. Turn with me to Matthew 3. Matthew 3, verse 9 and 10. 
Matthew 3, 9 and 10. And it says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We are we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In these verses, the Pharisees were responding to the message of repentance from John the Baptist. And they told John the Baptist, We don't need to worry about your call for repentance. We're okay. We're Jews. We're heirs of the promise. And John's response to them was, The axe is laid to the root of your presumptuous tree. Now let's go back to the dinner party. Imagine the scene. The Pharisees have invited Jesus, who is their long-awaited Messiah, by the way. They've invited him to dinner. Here we have him sitting at the table, the creator of everything. He's the creator of that table. He's the creator of all the food on the table. He's the one whose very words holds all of the atoms of the table together. And our homeboy here, he proceeds to say something with the authority of who will and won't be blessed. That's the second level of irony. The statement was made about the kingdom, but it was spoken to the king himself. The statement was made about the kingdom, but it was spoken to the very king himself. The guest had no idea how ironic this situation was for him. This reminds me of another time when someone had no idea of how ironic the situation was until much later. When I was in ninth grade, my English teacher was trying to teach us and my classmates about the meaning of irony. And one of my best friends and I, we were having fun trying to come up with the most ironic situations possible. We were trying to out eat, outdo each other with honor of irony. And uh, we, there was one instance we thought couldn't be topped. One of our classmates, up to that point in his high school life, he had never missed a day of school. And on the day that he was going to be awarded perfect attendance bank, uh, certificate, he didn't show up for school. And so we thought, that's it. We have found the perfect irony. No need to search any further. But actually, at that same time, I'm a child of the 90s, there was a really popular song on the radio. The name of the song was called Ironic by Alanis Morissette. Maybe you know it. In that song, the songwriter, she details out many things that are supposedly ironic, like rain on your wedding day or a traffic jam when you're already late or 10,000 spoons when all you need is a knife. And I remember hearing that song and discussing it with my friend. I mean, it's a pretty good song, but... We were asking at that time, are all the things in the song actually ironic? Remember, we didn't have the internet or social media. I mean, we did, but it was, it was a dial-up. It was, a, it was, it was tough to get connected. So we didn't know that there were other people maybe asking, discussing about this same topic. Could it be that Alanis wrote this song entitled Ironic, where she talks about things that are supposedly ironic, but actually nothing in them is ironic? Isn't that ironic? Don't you think? So it turns out years later, someone did ask her about this, and she admitted that she was 19 when she wrote the song. Her and her co-writer, they were just trying to make a catchy tune. They weren't going over the lyrics, all the jot and tittle, and making sure everything was actually ironic. But in the end, she did it. She nailed irony. You would expect a song to be ironic. You would expect a song called ironic to contain irony, but it did not. The error she made, she presumed that those things that, that she wrote about were actually ironic without even questioning them. Although in hindsight, she really did achieve it. She had no idea how ironic that situation really was. 
Jesus knows the heart of the person who made the statement in verse 15. He sees the presumption and pride, the self-assuredness that made him say that. While he was factually correct, he was still wrong. There's a third level of irony. He is saying in that statement how great the banquet in the kingdom will be, but ironically, he would reject the kingdom. Jesus knows this. Jesus shows us in the parable that he is the type of person who would actually not go to the banquet. And for us today, what could be more ironic than to go to church all your life, expecting to go to heaven when you die, but then it turns out you're not even a Christian? What could be more ironic than to go to church all of your life, expecting to go to heaven when you die, but it turns out you're not even a Christian? Or maybe you've heard a sermon one time and you took notice of the topic and you quickly thought, this doesn't apply to me. You, you took the first mental off-ramp that you could. Or have you ever caught yourself saying, I'm good with the content of this message, but I don't need it. But boy, do I wish that so-and-so was here to hear this message. They could really use this message. Be careful. Your pride may be causing you to presume too much. Jesus is going to speak to us in a way that will not let us continue in our false hope. Jesus is going to say to us, you can be too proud to enter the kingdom of God. Don't turn there, but let me read from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It says this, and I'm going to read from the New English translation. 1 Corinthians 10 verses 9 through 12 say this, And let us not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. And do not complain as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written for our instruction on whom the ages, on whom the ends of the ages have come. So let the one who thinks he is standing be careful that he does not fall. We can live presumptuously and we can take things for granted and we can assume realities that don't exist. The Bible warns us that our hearts can deceive us in such ways that can make us miss out on our salvation. Jesus gives us this stark warning about these dangers. At the end of his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, if you turn to Matthew, you can switch over to Matthew 7, verses 22 and 23. Matthew 7, verses 22 and 23 says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You are workers of lawlessness. In Hebrews 3, another warning. Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you see how sin can distort our perceptions? Today, there are so many echo chambers online we can find others who will reinforce our self-deception. This verse points to the necessity, Hebrews 3.13, of Christian fellowship. We are to help exhort one another to hold fast to the gospel that we have been entrusted. So how can we fight this pernicious problem, this problem of presumption? How can we fight it? Let me read Psalm 19. Psalm 19 verses 12 and 13 says this, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. 
So how do we fight these sins of presumption? First, we must have humility. Verse 12 says, who can discern his errors? We must realize our inability to see our own sin. Secondly, we must have faith. In the rest of those verses, 12 and 13, the psalmist is looking to God with faith that he will keep him from presumptuous sins and he will be declared justified. Faith and humility, along with help from our Christian brothers and sisters, is how we fight presumption. When the dinner guest made his statement, Jesus realized the presumption and pride behind it. And so, loving him, he began to teach them in a parable. That brings us to our second point today, the incompatibility. The blessings of this life can can keep people from the blessings of the next. In the parable, we see that the blessed people in this world would actually reject the invitation to God's kingdom. Their values make them incompatible with the upside-down values of the kingdom. Jesus illustrates this in our parable today, starting in verse 16. Turn back with me to Luke 14. We'll look at the parable starting at verse 16. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. The first character we see in this story is of the man who decided to host a dinner and invited lots of people. The Greek words for banquet and invite are the same words used in verses 8 and 12 from the preceding parable. So we know that Jesus is connecting this parable with the previous two. He's developing those ideas even further. And as to those that have been invited, Jesus' hearers of this would have assumed that it would be following the social norms of the day. If the host was great and it was a great banquet, then the guest would be on the who's who's list. Certainly, it's a great dinner that no self-respecting Jewish person would want to miss. Verse 17. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for now everything is ready. Verse 17 contains the second invitation. In those days, this double invitation was standard practice. Once the host receives the reply of the guest, are you coming or not? Then he would know the exact count of people coming, so he would know how many animals he needed to slaughter, how much produce he needed to buy or to harvest. However, the exact time and day of the feast wouldn't be known in advance. He had to, the host had to get everything ready. Then once everything was ready, a second invitation would be sent out to tell everyone it's time to come. Remember in those days, there, there's no refrigerators, there's no, uh, to keep the produce fresh, there's no chafing dishes to keep the food warm. The timetable is based on the host alone. The guests would have known this, by the way, and it's assumed that they would have prepared for this advance. They would be ready to drop everything and come. Actually, in their culture, if you RSVP to a, a banquet, You are duty-bound to attend. To turn around and not attend is an insult to the host. It's like you're trying to sabotage the host, make them lose reputation. They've spent the money. They've prepared all the food. They're going to be out that food if, if you don't come and eat it. So let's read in verse 18 to see how those that were invited responded. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. When the text says all alike, it means that they all did this, and these are just 
a representative sample of the excuses that were given, but they all gave similar excuses. They all gave a reason for why they couldn't attend the banquet. Now, the original hearers of this parable, these excuses would have not been valid at all. They would have known the responses to be as absurd as they sound. It would be like us saying today, when the teacher asks the student, I don't have it, the dog ate my homework, right? The teacher knows that's ridiculous. Or if you say, oh, I can't do that, I have a hangnail, right? It, this reminds me, um, these ridiculous, ridiculous excuses, this reminds me of, a, of these shirts that people like to wear nowadays, or maybe you go to Bucky's and you see it printed on a coffee cup. You know, I, I love those little funny quips and sayings that they have. I always like to read them and I find them amusing. There was one particular shirt that I saw one time that had something that was written on it that really made me laugh out loud. It said, just said on the shirt in big letters, sorry I'm light, sorry I'm late, I didn't want to come. Now, you would expect that if someone said, sorry I'm late, that what would finish that sentence is some excuse for the tardiness, right? Uh, even today, it's part of our social decorum to not actually say why you're late, you just Say something gracious so the host doesn't feel bad. But this in this T-shirt, it just came right out and said it and said, sorry, I'm late. I didn't want to come. It's funny. We realize because how much we couch our true feelings with excuses instead of just being honest. If the people in this parable would have just been honest, they would have said, I don't want to come to the banquet because I really prefer to be doing anything else. At this point in Jesus' story, the original listeners would have been shocked. No self-respecting Jew would refuse such a great banquet, no matter the reason. Jesus is using this shocking turn of events in this story to upend their sense of normal. He's saying, as crazy as you think this is the excuses in my story are, you're acting even crazier because the Messiah is here and you aren't receiving me. Something greater than Moses in here is here and you can't admit it. The values you're showing me Show me that you won't even enter my banquet. So he was using these excuses to shock them. Now, what about us today? We are now Luke's audience, the readers of his gospel account. Now we look at these excuses. We can see them as pointing to a larger problem we have today. The first excuse, I have bought a field, that can be seen as the dangerous preoccupation that we have with our possessions. The second excuse, I have bought oxen. That could be a dangerous preoccupation we have with our work, our profession. Or the third excuse, I have married, can be seen as a dangerous preoccupation we can have with our family. What's the common denominator among all these three excuses? It's the repeated use of the pronoun I. Look again in the excuses. I have bought and I must go. I have married and I cannot come. The outward excuses point to an inward condition of our heart that's incompatible with receiving the blessings of the Lord. Their value system is upside down. What they think is most important is actually least important. That's what Jesus is trying to get across to them. What you think is most important is actually least important. Jesus is pointing out this incompatible condition of their heart. Also, he points that same condition out in Mark chapter 10, the rich young ruler. In that story, I'm sure you know it well, we've preached on it many times, Jesus, a rich young, rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and he asks him what he has to do to inherit eternal life because he had checked all the religious boxes. And so I'll pick up Mark chapter 10, verse 21, and see Jesus' response. 
And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. People will make silly excuses, and they will make silly excuses to the point that it can interfere with their ability to inherit eternal life. In telling the parable of the great banquet and the including these ridiculous excuses of the guests, Jesus is, Jesus is hoping that the scribes and Pharisees will realize that this is what they are doing to him. The Jews had received God's first invitation. They had accepted the law. They had accepted the word of the prophets. But when the Messiah arrived, they clung to their religious traditions and trappings. They refused to humble themselves and to come to Jesus by faith. For us today, please consider a moment what may be the greatest threat to your soul. It may not be your wrong beliefs, but for us, the greatest threat may be the good things that God gives to us, the things that he would give to us that would cause us to prefer them over true life found in Christ. In his book, Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis encapsulates this situation when he says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We need to hear the warning Jesus is giving us in this parable and be aware of the things that will dull our appetite for the Lord. We need to be aware of the things that will dull our appetite for the Lord. When the Spirit tries to convict you of these things, don't make excuses. Don't say, I have too much to do. I can't. I'm too busy. I need to just focus on my family. Or, Lord, of course, I'll do that as long as it doesn't conflict with my plans. What we may really be saying is, Lord, I prefer my own life right now than your offer of fellowship. I prefer my life to your banquet. Now, I'm not saying that working a lot or spending time with your family are sinful in and of themselves. They're actually gifts from the Lord, and they're good if they're kept in their proper place. But they can be wrong if they hinder us from seeking His kingdom first of a first priority and having faith that all the other things that we need will be given to us. The people Jesus was speaking to, they confused the blessings in the kingdom with the blessings of the king himself. We can make that same mistake today. We can choose the gifts over the giver. So, so far, we have seen the first two invitations. The second, all of which was refused. Now the parable turns and shows us the response of the hope of the host. That leads us to the third point, the inversion. The end of the parable shows us this. The ones who receive the blessing are the least likely to be considered by the world as blessed. Let's read again in the text, starting in verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. 
Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. For the first time, our main character in the parable is called the master or the Lord in Greek. This parable shows us that actually the host is the main character. He's the one you need to pay attention to. And he represents God the Father. He is the main cause. He is the preparer of the banquet. He is the one that does the inviting. He's the one that does the bringing. And he is now the one who compels those to be brought in. The focus now is no longer on the guest and what they're doing, either the ones that refused or the ones that re received. The focus now turns to how the host would respond about this situation of the refusals. What will the master do with this, his righteous anger? Will he seek retribution? You see, the Pharisees hearing the story, they would have agreed with the master that was angry. They would have said, yeah, right, you should be angry. They, those guys all refused you. But what does the master do here? What does he do with that anger? He doesn't seek retribution. He goes back to the servant and says, okay, go out again then. Go into the city. Bring in the poor, crippled, blind, and lame. This word bring in Greek, it's the same verb in other places in Luke that means lead or being led or being introduced. So the people receiving a personal, these people now, the second group of invitees, they're receiving a personal invitation. Otherwise, because of their status, they would have assumed they couldn't join such a banquet. Let's keep reading verse 22 and 23. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. When he commands his servant to go out even further to bring in more guests that the house may be filled, the verb he uses is compel. In Greek, the verb carries the connotation of to force, to strongly persuade. But the meaning here, based on the context, is not about the strength of this action. It's about the extent it shows the willingness, the distance the master is willing to go to ensure his banquet tables are filled. The master here is willing to break with social and cultural norms, even disregarding his own status to fulfill his purpose. You see, in their culture, if you bring in people of low status, it lowers your status. He's showing that this host doesn't care about status. He has invited those who cannot repay him. He's invited those who have, from whom he has nothing to gain. This would have been even more absurd to the original hearers of the parable. We know, though, that God can use what's foolish in the world's eyes to put his own wisdom and glory on display. God can use what is weak and foolish to accomplish his purposes. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 says this, But God chose what is weak and foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. It is clear, salvation is by grace, so that no man can boast. When I was thinking about this compelling action that we see in the verse 23 and 24, I'm, I'm thinking of the, a beautiful example of this same type of grace that's shown in the Old Testament. That's the story of Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel chapter 9. Chapter nine. It's one of my favorites. Maybe you remember that story from when we preached through First and Second Samuel. Eric preached on it last July. You see, just as David became king, just to retell the story quickly, 
He recalled his covenant with Jonathan to show kindness to his family. And David not only remembered his promise to Jonathan, but he wanted to go beyond that original promise. And so he asked, is there anyone left in the house of Saul of whom I can show kindness to on behalf of my friend Jonathan? There was a member of Saul's house that was found, his grandson, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. And he was crippled in both feet, so he had to be carried. And David sent for him, and they brought him, they carried him into David's house. And he told Mephibosheth, I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat here with me at my table, at the king's table. To see the full significance of this graceful, gracious act, we must remember that usually in those days when one king took over another king, they would kill all of the remaining family of the former king to ensure there would be no uprising. But in here, but here, David instead, to show favor, he treats him, not only does he not kill him, but he goes beyond that and treats him as an honored guest. Just as the master of the Lord in our parable today, David didn't follow tradition. He didn't follow cultural norms. He instead followed the heart of God. So Mephibosheth had done nothing to earn favor from David. The blessings were freely given. So we see here in verses 21 through 23, the guests who actually attended the banquet are the polar opposite from what we'd expect. Now, people through the years have seen the connection between the outcast, the Jewish outcast in verse 21 as the Jewish remnant who would receive Jesus, and then verse 23, the Gentiles, the, those outside the city and the highways and hedges, those represent the Gentiles, that they would be grafted in. And that is a valid interpretation of the extent of God's saving grace. But the point that this parable is showing us today and what we are walking through today is not about the nature of those people who receive grace. It is about the warning against presumption of grace. You see, the Pharisees were thinking, the master in this story, he would never go out and get those kind of people, right? Not only is this master going and getting Jewish scum, but he's going in outside the city to the pagans, to the Gentiles, and bringing them to the banquet. No way, Jesus, I don't buy it. You've crossed the line in the story. Jesus, you can't be insinuating that this master would stoop to go get those types of peoples, outcast and Gentiles. How backward can this story get? If that's the case, Jesus, I don't want anything to do with this banquet if those types of people are going to be there. And Jesus would agree with them. He would say, Yep, you aren't the type of people that would come to that banquet because this is how it works. He says it in verse 24, the last statement in the parable. Verse 24 says, For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Who will taste his banquet then? That's reserved for those people who realize they have nothing of value and they cannot pay the host back. The only people who, who will sit down at God's table for those that respond to him through a, his personal invitation in his son, Jesus Christ, and come to him by faith. This parable is showing us gospel truths. The work has already been done. The banquet has been prepared. The host of heaven is saying, come, for now everything is ready. All that is required of you is that you come empty-handed, humbly, and receive it as a gift that cannot be repaid. Our Lord is like the host in this parable. He has such a heart for the lost and the downcast, and he will not stop his invitation until the full number of saints have come in, until his house is full. What an encouragement. The invitation is still open for those people that have not yet accepted his offer of salvation. There's still room for you at God's table.
We must remember we're all like Mephibosheth. We are all cripples at the king's table. If you will receive Christ as your treasure. Please don't presume your salvation as the people of the dinner party did. The dinner party did. Your acceptance into his banquet will not be based on the parent, on the faith of your parents or of your grandparents. It will not be based on your church denomination or affiliation. Your fitness for the kingdom will not depend on your correct points of doctrine, secondary points of doctrine or theology. Your salvation is not based on a right decision you've made in the, in the past one time long ago when you were a young child and a pastor asked you, do you want to go to heaven or hell when you die? And you say, sure, I'd rather go to heaven. It doesn't take someone to be born again to choose eternal pleasure over eternal damnation. And don't presume that since you're pretty much a good person and you haven't committed anything heinous crimes, you've never cheated on your taxes, you've kept your nose clean, that you'll be in good standing on judgment day. Your salvation is only assured if you have saving faith in Christ alone, based on grace alone, not on your works or status. Now, please hear me. I'm not trying to get you to doubt your salvation. Rather, I'm trying to have you check your presumptions you've made about the gospel. Maybe today you realize that you have presumed things that are wrong, and you do feel like it is time now to come to faith in Christ. You want, If you feel like you want to respond to him, then come. Come in faith. That is evidence that you are one of the guests that would actually join the banquet, not make excuses. Receive Christ today as your treasure. If you would like to talk to me or one of the other elders more about this, find us after the service. We would love to discuss it more with you. We are a community who loves to shepherd people that are asking questions and are wanting by faith to make Jesus the Lord of their life. And please don't make excuses and say that I just need some more time to think about it. I, I, I'm not for sure if this is for me. This is what you were created for, to have fellowship with your Savior. John, in his book of Revelation, he tells us what the final banquet will be like. He tells us what the eternal banquet will look like. It's a beautiful vision. Turn with me, Revelation 19, starting in verse 7. Revelation 19, starting in verse 7. Verse 7 says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has been made her, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. And for the believers that are here with me today, we know that there are still unbelievers on the outside. We, are no, we know people in our family, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, that have not come yet to Christ's banquet, and they won't come. Just like the people in the parable, they won't come until they are invited by someone personally. 2 Corinthians 5 20 says this, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This means the task is given to us Christians to go out into our community, to go out to our workplace, into to the wider world, and to share his gospel message. 
And it may be that just like that kid who was hearing about that place called Australia for the first time when he was digging and he, the place sounded so strange, he couldn't comprehend it. The people listening to you, when you tell them about how the kingdom of God works, it may be hard for them to understand, but just know that God will give those ears who need to hear. It can even still be hard for us to hear today, to get our minds around the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. But the Puritans in their prayer book called The Valley of Vision, they did a pretty good job of painting the picture. And I would like to close our time together by reading the first prayer from that book. It was called The Valley of Vision. It says this, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime stars, Lord, in the daytime stars can be seen from the deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. Let me close this in prayer. Oh God, I pray that we can understand what you have given us today in your word. I pray that we can see the nature of your kingdom. Thank you for teaching us this way, God. I thank you for um, this time together that we can humble ourselves and that we can hear what your word has to say to us, Lord. We can open up the eyes of our hearts, Lord. We can't open them, Lord. You must open them. And we are just grateful and gracious that you have been good to us and have given us this blessing of your word and of the fellowship of your word, God. May the Holy Spirit use these words that have been spoken in the scripture that we have here today to bring people to your banquet table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.